This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It is Thursday, December 14, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave. Let's hit those horns and go. Oh, such a great way to start your Thursday morning with those classic horns coming up on the show today. A Mountie is currently on trial in Saskatchewan for the murder of his partner. Journalist John Lepke gives you more on the story. A community of tiny homes in Kitchener, Ontario, is aiming to empower its residents by offering them privacy and independence. Don Dickinson gives you the details in her preview of McLean's magazine. And it's been a busy year in the comedy space. Comedian Nick Thielen reviews his top three picks for the year. All that and more to come on the show today, but we begin as we always do with the top news stories of the day. We will begin south of the border as an impeachment inquiry is underway for U.S. President Joe Biden. Liz Landers has this report. The House of Representatives spent several hours Wednesday debating the opening of an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. The top Democrat in the House, Leader Hakeem Jeffries. Mr. Speaker, I rise today in strong opposition to this fake, fraudulent and fictitious impeachment inquiry effort. Republicans have been investigating still unproven claims that President Biden improperly benefited from his family members' business ventures overseas. Liz Landers, ABC News, Washington. And into an international story now, Canada it has joined the UN call for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says it is important to find a long-term two-state solution. We're going to continue to press and work with international partners towards uh, a two-state solution where Palestinians and Israelis can live in peace and security in internationally recognized borders. Uh, we will continue to use all the tools that we have and look at tools that uh, others are using as well to continue uh, to put pressure on Hamas uh, to uh, cease its violence. And staying in the national scope, Canada's spy agency has agreed to hire an independent human rights specialist to review its diversity strategy as part of a settlement of a complaint from a black female intelligence officer. Karen Rebo has more. The Canadian Human Rights Commission and the Canadian Security Intelligence Service says the spy agency will also publish an executive summary of the specialist's findings and recommendations. Few details were provided about the black female officer's complaint, but the resolution avoided the need for a planned tribunal hearing. Word of the settlement comes shortly after the director of CSIS apologized to staff for his response to rape and harassment allegations within the agency's BC office. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Research finds that an awareness around reconciliation is increasing, but there is still more work to be done. Brittany Hobson files this report. 
Researchers from three Canadian universities measured the progress of non-Indigenous and Indigenous peoples in their shared journey towards reconciliation last year. The team surveyed more than 3,000 Indigenous and non-Indigenous people through an online questionnaire. They found 90% of the non-Indigenous respondents and 94% of Indigenous respondents had read or heard about residential schools up from 65% and 87% respectively in 2021. The researchers say this is likely due to widespread publicity of unmarked burial sites at several former residential schools and a visit to Canada last year by Pope Francis who apologized for harms at the schools. Brittany Hobson, The Canadian Press, Winnipeg. A grocery code of conduct is being held up by the lack of support from the country's top grocers. Lisa Laporte has the latest. The interim board sent a progress report to the federal, territorial and provincial agriculture ministers on Wednesday, which was obtained by the Canadian press. It includes the latest draft of the code and a draft of the bylaws for the Office of the Grocery Sector Code of Conduct. Loblaw and Walmart Canada both expressed concern recently that the code could raise food prices. Federal Industry Minister François-Philippe Champagne met Monday with agriculture ministers to talk about the code and said they're disappointed two of the five major grocers have indicated they won't sign it. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. Now to Can says the amount of household debt is shrinking while the cost of servicing that debt is on the rise. Michelle Zakian has this story. The agency says Canadians owed $1.82 in credit market debt for every $1 of household disposable income in the third quarter. That's down ever so slightly from the prior quarter. Meanwhile, the cost of servicing that debt ticked up thanks to higher interest rates. BMO Economics says household debt ratios continue to modestly improve as higher rates weigh on demand for loans. However, high service debt costs are pressuring consumer spending. Michelle Zedekian, The Canadian press. And finally, a new study finds that people who fear getting sick may result in higher death rates. Ed Donahue has all the details of this report. Illness anxiety disorder, hypochondriasis, is a rare condition. A large study out of Sweden says people with this condition tend to die earlier than those who are not as vigilant about their health. They're unable to shake their fears despite normal physical exams and lab tests. Some may change doctors repeatedly. Others may avoid medical care. Treatment can involve cognitive behavioral therapy, relaxation techniques, education, and sometimes antidepressant medication. The researchers found people with the diagnosis have an increased risk of death from both natural and unnatural causes, including circulatory and respiratory diseases and suicide. Chronic stress is a contributing factor. I'm Ed Donahue. And that's it for the top news stories of the day. It's now time for the daily polls. And before we get into today's poll, let's take a look at the results from yesterday's poll where I asked you, do you have a registered disability savings plan? And if so, what's stopping you? 71% of you said yes, you do, while 29% said no. Uh, we had a, a Facebook response from Tony who wrote in, not sure if I can sign up for one. My hearing loss is moderate, uh, moderately severe, and I don't know if I, and I know I don't qualify for the disability tax credit. So not sure what I even qualify for. 
And that's a very good point from Tony because as we talked about in part of our conversation with uh, Ryan Chin yesterday, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of rules and regulations around the qualification, the criteria, and so it's always important to kind of find out what you actually are qualified for and for a more streamlined process. On to today's daily poll. This is going to relate to a conversation in segment two with Don Dickinson and Elizabeth Muller, but well, I want to find out from you, how comfortable are you renting a room in someone's house through an online platform? Are you very comfortable, somewhat comfortable, or not comfortable at all? And you can vote on the poll on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. or on Twitter at Accessible Media. Let's welcome in Elizabeth Moeller and Laura Bain to get their thoughts on this. Elizabeth, I'll start with you. How comfortable are you renting a room in someone's home through an online platform? I would say very comfortable, permitting that I've done my research and feel comfortable with what I've found. I think the key, especially for folks like me who have a disability, is to make sure the experience is going to be one that's um, accessible, inclusive, that we're not going to face any discrimination. So there's a lot of I's that, that I would want to dot and T's to cross. And I think I'd really want to be reading reviews of whatever the platform is, maybe even reaching out to folks on that platform who've used the service. Um, and as well, I think I would just want to do a little bit of research into um, the ratings or rankings of that particular individual renter. Um, so I would say very comfortable with the caveat that, that the research I've done has led me to feel very comfortable. So very with a caveat. <laughs> very with a caveat. Somewhat very, very somewhat. Yes, uh, <laughs> comfortable. Uh, Laura Bain, what about you? How comfortable are you renting a room in someone's house through an online platform? I'm going to fall in the somewhat comfortable category. So I think with renting a room, like if we're talking about travel, there's always going to be an element of risk versus reward that you need to accept. Um, so renting a room can be a really affordable option compared with a hotel or even like a self-contained apartment on a site like Airbnb or VRBO. And it can also lead to like a rich cultural experience and making a friend um, in the place that you're traveling. I've mostly done self-contained apartments when I've traveled, um, but I have done a couple of situations where it's like a room with an ensuite and those have been positive, but I tend to go overboard with my sort of diligence on these platforms and limit it to, uh, you know, on Airbnb, they have super hosts. So I only go with super hosts. And then I read pretty much every review that anyone has written um, so that I kind of have a good idea of things. I would never go with a place that didn't have very many reviews. And then also, you know, getting a feeling for the host by having a few back and forth messages and like, like how communicative are they and uh, that sort of thing. So, um, but that being said, I think you do need to accept that there is the possibility that of course, with these platforms that they could cancel on you or you could show up and it's not going to be suitable. And then you have to know yourself well enough. Are you the type of traveler that's prepared to pivot in that situation and maybe like rent a hotel that's going to cost more or not be in your ideal neighborhood? And for me, I'm comfortable with that. I'd say if I'm traveling with someone, but perhaps not if I'm traveling by myself. Oh, those are very important kind of notes to include with that. I would say for myself, I'm kind of on the somewhat comfortable category. I've done it. I've I've uh, rented kind of rooms and, and places through Airbnb, through uh, Verbo uh, and, and sites like that. But 
when it comes to renting a space, I'm not the kind of person who wants to share. I, I, I want the full place to myself. I don't want to have to have like, you know, just a single room within someone's house or things like that. So I, I want to have the full place to myself in order to be comfortable. And if that's not an option, then I'm not going to be staying with them. I rather than go to a hotel or something like that. I, I'm not sure whether if it's just it's more the safety or the comfortability i i don't fully even know what it is but i i think it's just it's all in in my own mind of what my comfort is i i, I want no one else around that i'm not kind of looking to share the experience with and so that's kind of where i land on this um in in regards to that you're also on top of that i'll do all those review checks like like you both mentioned you know like seeing what the ratings are like i'm not going to go for a one star uh spot on airbnb or verbo or or sparrow or some of these other sites there's usually a reason why they get those low ratings but um yeah yeah for me to be comfortable it's got to be the full space uh for me to rent in that regard but Thank you both for chiming in. I want to find out from the folks at home. I want to hear from you. Are you comfortable and how comfortable are you renting a room in someone's home through an online platform? Very comfortable, somewhat comfortable, or not comfortable at all? You can vote on Twitter at Accessible Media, on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. You can also send an email, feedback at ami.ca if that's your cell, or pick up the phone and call 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, a community of tiny homes in Kitchener, Ontario is aiming to empower its residents by offering them privacy and independence. Don McLean gives you the details in her preview of McLean's magazine. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming in audio on AMIplus.ca. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. This week's edition of McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio features a couple of articles about housing issues in two Canadian cities. Don Dickinson has the details because she is the content curator of the show for AMI-audio. Hello, Don. Good morning. Good morning, Alex. So your first article is titled My Life in a Tiny Home Community by Nadine Green. It talks about a community of tiny houses in Kitchener, Ontario, which is overseen by an organization called A Better Tent City. The group empowers its residents by offering them privacy, independence, and stability within the safety of their own home. So Don, what is a tiny home community? Well, uh, it's, this is not to be confused with the uh, uh, tiny houses that people build and uh, that spend a great deal of money on because some of the tiny houses can run upwards of 150000 odd. No, this is actually um, a community of uh, dwellings, okay, and usually uh, they're no more than 10, 8 by 10 or 8 by 12, 
and they're uh, built for individuals who are, you know, having a rough time when it comes to finding housing. And um, they usually accommodate like a bed, a dresser, a TV, a couch. Uh, some have washroom facilities, but most of the time uh, they're shared facilities exterior to the house itself. And so, as I mentioned at the top, this this article is uh, told and written by Nadine Green. Like, how did she uh, become unhoused? Yeah, well, it's a, definitely a very emotional story because it, it is in the first person. Uh, you know, she talks about the fact that uh, she moved from Jamaica to Canada nearly 40 years ago. And she says, oh, and that was at 16, by the way. And she says, quote, my parents divorced and I had to go with my mother and her new husband to Cambridge, Ontario, leaving my father behind. I didn't want to leave my home, the salty air and the year round sun. I moved out of my family's house in high school. I didn't want to be on my own at all. But families can be complicated at 16. I spent my later years hiding the fact that I was homeless. I went to school and played sports. But then at night, she would have to find accommodations in like empty lobbies and, and any place at all that she could find to, to, to sleep. So uh, it was a tough go. And so what ended up coming from this is, and what this article really profiles is the, the, the program of Better Tent City. So how did that program and, and that organization begin? Well, there was a gentleman by the name of Ron Doyle, and he owned a massive uh, convention center in Kitchener called Lot 42. Uh, Ron had lots of business ventures, in, including all kinds of uh, wedding venues and whatnot. And he had read an article uh, an article about Nadine and had heard about what um, she had been doing to try to help her friends who were, in fact, uh, you know, in the same condition she was in. Um, and she, he was very interested. So what he did was he offered this facility uh, as a way of... Um, helping out people, uh, obviously a great uh, philanthropist, and uh, and then things develop from there. And so, like, once, it, what are the kind of the costs that were involved in setting up this project and in providing housing for those in need? Well, the initial cost, as I said, was um, a bit uh, steep because um, they had to. Um, actually bring in these various uh, um, uh, homes. Um, they were able to bring in 12 cabins with insulation and, as I said, beds in them at a cost of approximately $35,000. And then the shower and laundry facilities that followed cost about another $30,000 to install. But really, Alex, when you think about it, I mean, uh, $65,000 compared to, you know, the programs that, 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 the government has to finance that that really was quite economical to be able to set all this up for these people yeah and it's just having a space where people can feel safe secure they can have that independence and insecurity you know uh, in in the article dean talks about the the idea of just having a door with a lock on it and and yes. what that that means and the difference and impact that can have. So we're, I, we're starting to see more of these types of programs, initiatives, and in cooperation, not only with independent organizations, but with different levels of government as using this as a solution to combat homelessness and, and the, the housing crisis. So it's a really positive um, kind of program, and hopefully this continues elsewhere in, in the country. So 
Don, thank you for bringing this article forward. You also had another one that is related still to housing, and this is connected to our daily poll for today, because this article is called Sharing a Ottawa Couple's Spare Bedroom by Alana Denise Chua. And the article considers the experience of a 20-year-old international student who moved from Nigeria to Canada three years ago. And he uses the house, he, he got involved with the house sharing through the program called Sparrow. So can you tell us about Sparrow and how it works? Because I've never heard of Sparrow before, Don. Uh, well, you know, Alex, <laughs> I had neither. And I thought after I read the article, I thought, oh, my God, what a great program. Sparrow uh, basically is an online platform that connects homeowners with spare bedrooms and renters looking for affordable and safe housing. So uh, that's how this particular uh, individual met up with the couple that he was sharing with. Uh, he's uh, a 20-year-old, and he moved from Nigeria, international student, to Canada three years ago to study computer science at Carleton University uh, in Ottawa. And uh, and then he uh, decided uh, to change programs and whatnot. But eventually he met up with Judith and Peter. And so um, the 20-year-old student, uh, his name is Goodness Ade, and uh, is, he's the student being referenced within the article and everything. But is this his first experience with home sharing? Uh, well, no, it wasn't actually. He had lived um, in a situation where he was home sharing. He was paying about $975 a month, which included his meals cooked by the landlord. Um, but he said uh, he, he found it... Um, a bit disconcerting because he said his previous landlord kept to himself very much so, uh, which is not a bad thing, he said, but not knowing uh, who you're living with is kind of a bit weird. And he said he he found it... Um, you know, not to his liking, the fact that, that, that you know, he was uh, uh, feeling a bit isolated, which changed completely when he got into this new uh, sharing, because he said Peter and Judith are just these, this wonderful couple, and they kind of include him in much of their activities. Well, and um, you, so you, you mentioned uh, Peter and Judith, like, what drew them into the program Sparrow? Well, you know, very... Um, very uh, common um, in that they retired last year uh, and of course their income went down right uh, and uh, Judith said that uh, my husband and I still had a mortgage to pay off and in fact we've had eight mortgage rate increases since I retired and of course we all know that with the, the bank increases uh, the price of food have gone up the price of gas had gone up significantly so they were uh, feeling the uh, pinch uh, you know um, it was a financial incentive to open up our home to lodgers and uh, we decided that we were going to go with uh, this program that Sparrow offered. So really it worked out for both of them, you know. I mean, they, they're an older couple, as I say, a retired couple, and they were looking for, for more income. And, um, you know, uh, Goodness was obviously looking for somebody, you know, to accommodate his uh, uh, housing needs. And uh, it worked out really well. Yeah, it seems like it's such a positive experience uh, for for both sides in this. Obviously, you know, there can be uh, good experiences, there can be bad ones. Uh, Don, I kind of posed a uh, the daily poll question to be similar to um, kind of this, uh, based on this topic about comfort levels around renting a, a room in someone's home through an online platform. I'm curious for you, would you, how comfortable are you 
a renting a room but also you know renting out a room to someone through an online platform um well i don't know if i would say i would be comfortable alex you know i think it depend it depends on the program like really um when you when you have a program that gives you all the details, that would probably make the difference, right? Mm -hmm. You'd have to know who was coming in, uh, and you'd have to know their their background. And basically, if you're combati compatible, because what you don't want to do is have somebody come in and uh, not be compatible, <laughs> obviously, right? Because then, uh, you know, but I do have friends, believe it or not, um, two, actually, that... Um, that have shared uh, their homes with students and it's worked out quite well for them. Yeah, you know, and I, I think it really comes down to it. It's a vetting process. It's that compatibility between the rentee and, and the, the homeowners or the renters, uh, uh, so to speak. Um, if, if that compatibility is there, like it is with uh, Judith, Peter, and uh, goodness, then you can have a really positive experience. So I'm glad to hear there's there's some positive experiences in in, in your your circle as well. Don, Don, thank you so much for for bringing these two articles uh, forward. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks, Alex. Bye bye. Bye. That was Don Dickinson. She is the curate, uh, content curator for McLean's Magazine on AMI Audio. And you can catch McLean's Magazine weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern on AMI Audio. And to continue this conversation all around Sparrow, I want to welcome back in Elizabeth Moeller because Elizabeth, you've had firsthand experience using this Sparrow platform that Don referenced. So I want to find out what was your experience like? Yeah, I have. My experience was very positive. Like I alluded to in the first uh, segment, I really did my research. So, you know, just to set some context, um, I live in Toronto, but I'm a student at Western and I needed to be in London a couple of nights a week for coursework. And I didn't want to spend money on a hotel that would get very expensive very quickly. So I started looking around and one of the things that caught my attention right off the hop with Sparrow was on their website. They basically say, we welcome all types of people into our community, whether you have a disability, whether you're um, from the 2SLGBTQ plus community. We also will not tolerate discrimination on either end. And if you experience it, please let us know. And I realized that those can just sometimes be words. But right away, I thought, OK, this is a good start for me. I'm feeling safe. So I started the process. Um, it's a matching process. You build a profile, and it's a member profile, and, and you get matched. And I was very clear that I was a student. Um, I also had a conversation with a Sparrow staff member who is lovely. And I actually talked about, you know, should I put in my profile that I have sight loss? Um, I want to be transparent with homeowners. They were lovely and gave me some guidance. Obviously, it was up to me. Um, I didn't. I, I just shared that I was a student. I talked about the fact I wasn't looking for a, a full-time place. And I got a, a couple of matches, but one right away really resonated with me. And we had a, a phone chat. I was really diligent, like I mentioned earlier, about research. And I did share that I was uh, somebody living with sight loss um, and that I was looking for something a couple of nights a week, which was perfect for her. Um, she was very accommodating. I also did a, a Zoom sort of walkthrough of her, her home with a sighted friend of mine kind of describing what they were seeing. So just putting in some, building in some safety precautions right off the hop, right? So other friends know I'm renting. Uh, she knows I have other people sort of with eyes on the situation. Um, it's a chance for me to get to know her in a second setting. And then, you know, eventually we chatted and we, we decided it was going to be a go. Um, the experience for me was great in terms of, you know, I was there a couple of nights a week. I, I only used 
use the kitchen for sort of tea and coffee because I have a meal plan when I'm at school, which I think made her feel a little bit better again about the, the site uh, issue, although she was uh, and is lovely. Um, and I what I would say again is that there was always opportunities with, to check in with Sparrow if there was problems. Um, but overall, very positive. I felt very safe. I felt very supported by the Sparrow community of staff. And I really like the, the profile member matching. So you can really kind of hone in on what you want and what the other person wants. Yeah, it seems like this is a completely different experience from like an Airbnb or verbal. Yes. It really just comes down to, okay, you find a room, you select, yep. oh, there's some some ratings. Yep. It seems like it's a lot more tailored. Absolutely. There's a lot more process you, you can engage with beyond just, you know, being precautious yourself. But there's it seems to be a lot more open understanding. And it seems almost like there's more vetting on, on the Sparrow side of things. Is that Would that be accurate? Yeah, I mean, I haven't used a ton of the other platforms. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I will proceed with caution here. But what I will say is, I wanted a consistent place to stay. I didn't want to be couch hopping um, every every week. Like I had to be in London in the beginning of my my doctoral studies for coursework every week, and I, I didn't want an added stress of where am I sleeping tonight. So what I like about Sparrow is, is you could have that can build that consistent relationship. And what I liked is again with the member matching, she wasn't looking for something long term either. She wanted something for us. Well semester in our case um she was leaving a bit of extra cash to travel um she liked the fact i wasn't there all the time um not because it was me just that's not what she was looking for so <laughs> yeah. you know just to, but yeah to your point i think there is and i don't know if it's because they're newer or if they're trying to fill sort of a niche need like sparrow is longer term i think um but i I think what I appreciated, like I said earlier, was just this welcoming sense. And I, I, like I said, I recognize it can be words on a website, but every step of the way I felt supported and um, like the vetting was, was done with some diligence. Yeah, I, I think based on just chatting with you, Elizabeth, and, and the article that Don presented, I'm going to have to check out Sparrow check to it see out. What, it, what it's all about. So thank you so much for adding some more context to, to the platform. And uh, we'll check in with you a bit later in the show. Absolutely. Okay, that was Elizabeth Muller. And coming up after the break, it's been a busy year in the comedy space. Comedian Nick Thielen reviews the, his top three picks for comedy specials of the year. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI. now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. I'm Alex Mythian for Dave. It's been a busy year in the comedy space. It seems every week a new comedy special is dropping. Comedian Nick Thielen has seen many of them, and he's here with his top three picks for the year. And these picks are not in any particular order. Hello, Nick. How are you doing today? Hey, Alex. I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm not too bad. I mean, I'm I'm always excited to chat comedy yeah. and specials with you. So before we get into your picks, I wanted to first find out what was your criteria? What were you looking for when determining your top three picks of the year? Well, for me, I try to kind of uh, stick to, I, I, I read a lot of different reviews of different specials. Um, some of them, it's their first stand-up special, so I really wanted to learn about them and learn about some new comics. Other ones I've heard of have great um, storytelling skills, and I wanted to kind of dive in deeper into their comedy. And then 
other comics I've just uh, enjoyed over the years and I wanted to see, or like I've, I've enjoyed over this past year. And then I found out they put out a special and I, I wanted to uh, check it out and let other people know about it. But I know also that the holidays can be somewhat of a difficult time of year for people. So uh, I think that comedy anytime, no matter the time of year, I think it's just a good chance to, you know, kind of reset and, you know, maybe give yourself a, a laugh after a hard day. So um, I think it can be really for any time of year, but especially, you know, maybe the holidays are a bit stressful for some people and this could be a good chance to sort of reset and uh, give yourself a little giggle and then, uh, and then go on with your day. Yeah, absolutely. You know, who, who, who doesn't need a laugh this time of year? So the first special you wanted to profile is uh, Zainab's Johnson's special called Hijab's Off. Now, what did you like Correct. about yeah. this special? I like this special a lot. So she is a uh, black Muslim woman. And obviously, so that's a very unique uh, perspective. Uh, she talks about her and her mom having uh, 13 siblings, her family, so very big family, and talks about each of them and sort of their um, upbringing and sort of what they, you know, what they do as professions, which I thought was very interesting, you know, because as a, especially in your first special, you kind of want to, uh, endear yourself to your audience and she really does a good job of that something that i really enjoyed about this one as well this special is filmed in the round as you can see a little bit there so it's it's round so she's kind of talking in a circle and it's got a very unique look to it as you can see and then um, she's got some uh, very funny stories about how her her parents wouldn't let her have candy and gets into a bit of a more, some more serious topics, but very, very fun. And then at the end, she ended off by talking about, um, you know, she did this uh, five minute uh, set in, with uh, Marlon Wayans, who's a fairly uh, big known comic in front of a couple thousand people. And, and they ended up giving her a hundred dollar bill which she then ended up framing and still has to this day. So she told a really cool story at the end. And I just really enjoyed her perspective because I enjoyed her mix of her culture culture, and her talking about her differences and challenges in her life. And I thought she brought a really fun, uh, humorous perspective to it. And, and you mentioned this is her first hour-long comedy special. How yeah. was her presence on stage? Did she look and uh, feel comfortable being up there for her first special? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it definitely seemed to sort of like command the stage and uh, keep the attention of the people, which I think, I don't know, I've never performed in in the round myself, but I feel like it, you know, it would present an extra challenge to make sure that everyone feels like they're seen and heard. Um, and so I, and I, again, like, it's sort of got this uh, church kind of a vibe to it with some lights there. And it's a really, really beautiful space. And then again, like she sort of did some uh, small little act outs on stage, which I thought were pretty funny. So uh, kind of bringing her personality and talking about, you know, she's not the typical uh, Muslim, uh, you know? So um, I really enjoyed that perspective. And for me, that's uh, not a culture I know a lot about, but you know, I think that uh, anyone that's talking about their own personal experiences and wants to bring a, a funny perspective, I really find that very powerful. And, and she did a great job with that. 
Great. So let's move on to the second special you wanted to profile. It is Kyle Kinnan's Shocks and Struts. So what did, why did this special make your list? Well, for me, uh, Kyle Kinane is someone that's a great storyteller. He really, um, he, sometimes he goes into the absurd with a, with a joke. So he, he talks, you know, he kind of, um, for example, like talking about his, uh, experiences going flying, like he's talking about, um, you know, maybe what it's like getting on the plane initially and then, you know, uh, talking about the whole flight experiences and then how about how like, you know, when you're a pilot and you finally land the plane and and, and you, sta you stand outside the plane and everyone's, you know, you hope that someone's like, oh, look, me, look, I just landed this plane without any issues. You're welcome that I saved your lives, you know. So um, I really found like he kind of takes a sort of an, an absurdist or an extreme, it takes a joke to an extreme, but I really, I really love his storytelling. And uh, there's a lot of fun topics, I think, like uh, like how he uses big words in conversation. That's his excitement in life now because he's getting older. He talks about having some, um, you know, uh, like he talks about having a, uh, you know, sort of a, how do you say that, an acid reflux issue, which is definitely an older issue i think and then talks about people who use crystals and just sort of all these fun topics that i think like sort of these you know less serious topics that really allow you to sit back and uh, and, and enjoy and also you know i thought it was really great how he talked about buying a van and because he didn't know what covid was gonna do didn't know what it was gonna turn into didn't know if he was gonna have to like buy his own van and sort of uh, you know, tell these jokes to people on the street, kind of figuring out a way how to how to continue doing his job. So, uh, very funny, uh, and also you know, again, great, great physical presence on stage and good act outs. So, um, I think that's something that if you enjoy, you know, comics being silly and and having sort of some somewhat of a visual element to their jokes, then then Kyle is another one of those great jokes that you can. Uh, good comedians that you should definitely look into um and then uh, and then he's got uh, what we call him the in the business i guess a great callback from the beginning of his special and then uh you know at the end of your special you refer to that joke again and so i don't want to ruin it for people but it's a great great special that i highly recommend people check out yeah, and so his special, uh, Shocks and Struts, is available to watch on YouTube, which is great. People can have access yeah. to it. And I should also make a reference to uh, that Hijab's Off is available to stream on Amazon Prime. So it, it's also yeah, great and to... There are a lot of great stand-up, sorry, there are a lot of great stand-up specials just on YouTube. These days, you can get a lot of great, talented stand-up specials that, you know, sh could be or should be on streaming services that you can just get on on. Uh, on, on YouTube, so definitely yeah, well, recommend doing that. And speaking of uh, uh, comedy specials on YouTube, your last selection, Joe Perez Slow and Steady, is also available on YouTube. So how did yeah. his how does he use his his pacing and his cadence to really help sell his jokes and his comedy? Yeah, I'm not quite sure if you're familiar with Joe Perez, but Joe Perez is a guy that had a uh, a show called. Uh, Joe Para talks to you on Adult Swim and sort of like 
Joe Perez kind of does this like ASMR style of comedy where he talks very slowly and uh, he talk he talks about oh did you come to uh did you buy tickets to see the slow comedy man today or you know talks about his favorite food being rolls and just like this guy uh this guy's sort of uh, laid back approach to comedy. It's really something like if you enjoy, honestly, like on, yeah, like ASMR type comedy, like he really, if you enjoy what he does, there's a lot of almost uh, like some of these things I, I'll listen to when, when I go to sleep, they're literally like he's talking about, in this case, he did one about Christmas or he did one about being at a record store and enjoying that experience. And this, this comedy special really was, if you enjoy like his style of comedy, it really is something to, to be aware to, to, to enjoy. He, he, he really does a lot of great crowd work with the audience to asking them whether they think, like he's feeding uh, chips to a squirrel and he says if I gave a squirrel a full size pita chip do you think that the squirrel would pick up the pita chip or would it just like take a couple pieces and then run up the tree and then so he does this sort of like I don't know interactive thing with the audience where he asks them kind of almost individually for their feedback as to whether this squirrel would take uh, this thing so it's very very like I don't know. It's it's definitely slow paced, but it's very very fun. And then he does one of his classic sort of uh, sleep stories at the end, but which are also very like musically inclined, I should say, because they're very, you know, it it might seem like it's random, but there's definitely the sense of like relaxation and trying to, you know, uh, it's it's a very comforting, very funny. But very comforting special. If you enjoy his his comedy, you'll definitely enjoy this special. It's definitely something I recommend, even just for seeing the differences between comedic styles. And then he he does a really interesting read about a a column that he he wrote for dating for the New York Times. And I don't know if it's real, but it is absolutely phenomenal. So highly recommend uh, checking out this special if you enjoy some of Joe Perez's other other work very good nick thank you so much for bringing forward a top three list of the year i've been able to kind of catch glimpses of each of these i i gotta sit down over the break and and watch them all in their entirety thank you so much have yourself a wonderful day and we'll chat in 2024 definitely thank you and have a good uh, holiday season you too. That was Nick Thielen. He is a comedian based in Alberta. In 60 seconds, Elizabeth Moeller will be here with the weather story of the day. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Strength in energy and utilities helped lead Canada's main stock index up nearly 2% in trading yesterday, while U.S. markets also surged after the Federal Reserve announced it's keeping its key interest rate unchanged. Toronto's TSX index gained 395 points to close at 20,629. New York's Dow Jones average climbed 512 points, and the Nasdaq gained 200. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 240 points 
points. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning higher at 74.29 cents U.S. Cineplex says lower business volumes are expected in the near future as the impacts of this year's Hollywood strikes start to be felt. This comes as the Toronto-based company reported box office revenues of $35 million for November compared to $52 million brought in during the same month in 2019. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. That was your Business Minute. It's now time for the Weather Report with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, you are focused in on the situation in Alberta and kind of the wacky, wild weather they're experiencing <laughs> over the last few days and going forward. Indeed, I wanted some alliteration for a Thursday morning. So Alberta is in for a wild, wacky weather whiplash. Say that 10 times fast uh, this week. After enjoying some pretty unusually warm temperatures on Wednesday, Albertans can get ready for a sudden switcheroo to some colder weather and some snow. This change is due to an Alberta clipper, which is going to bring 5 to 10 centimetres of snow to southern parts of the province. And this snow is going to make roads a little slippy and slidey, so do take care along that QE2, especially from Red Deer to Calgary and eastward. So if you do have travel plans, be sure to check those road conditions and be prepared for changing weather and some delays. Today, though, some colder air is going to move in from the northwest, bringing temperatures back to normal around that freezing mark. And this is when that Alberta clipper will develop, bringing with it that potential for more snowfall in parts of Alberta. The, that area from Jasper to Red Deer, extending into Hannah, is expected to see a persistent snowfall. However, keep in mind that the storm tracked might shift and affect the amount of snow in different areas of the province. The snow is expected to start later in the morning today and continue throughout the day. But not to worry though, some mild air is expected to return over the weekend and warm up those temps. So back over to you, Alex. Well, thank you very much for that, Elizabeth. Uh, we'll check in later in the show with you. But coming up after the break, Audible has released their top 20 list for their best content of 2023. Laura Bain gives you the scoop in the Entertainment Report. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythian for Dave. Laura Bain will be by in a couple minutes with the entertainment report, but first, it's time now for the regional news update. We begin in the prairies where there are a few stories making headlines today. In Alberta, the University of Calgary has become the world's first United Nations university hub focused on water. This is a partnership between UFC and the Hamilton, Ontario-based United Nations University Institute for Water, Environment and Health. Institute Director Kabe Madani says the institutes share a vision. The University of Calgary came as one of the um, best candidates to have the world's um, first hub that, that actually 
and sets the bar high. The world is watching. They, hopefully, they should be a role model. They would be a role model for the rest of the world um, to make education and research more fun. And in over to Saskatchewan, an Edmonton author says she's saddened after a high school in uh, central Saskatchewan banned her from doing a presentation about her experience when her son came out as gay. Ruby Ramada Swanson says the school in Humboldt, in Humboldt rejected her because of a provincial government directive. She says she had planned to speak to student at the Student Inclusion Club. For those kids that don't have support, they need to be validated. They need to know that it's, that they're not alone, that there are people that understand, and that there are others who have gone through this and that they will be okay. And elsewhere in uh, the prairies, the Manitoba government said they found some cost savings as it tries to deal with a large deficit. Premier Wabkanu says one move is ending the recruitment of nurses from the Philippines. Very few people uh, have come to Manitoba through this uh, program that was announced. And as a result, the cost of, of paying these folks, but also the cost of getting them set up is not something that we're going to have to spend money on this year. Over to Ontario now, when Ontario Premier Doug Ford is expected to expand the sale of alcohol in stores. Karen Rebo has a story. It was back during Ontario's 2018 election campaign, ahead of the Progressive Conservatives winning their first of two majority governments, that Ford promised to allow beer and wine to be sold in grocery and convenience stores across the province. From the aisle of a corner store, Ford hinted on social media yesterday that the province may be about to uncork an update. Get ready. We've got big news coming tomorrow. Ford's government ran into problems legally fulfilling his original campaign pledge because of the beer store's 10-year deal with the government that allowed for only a limited number of grocery stores to sell beer and wine. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And staying in Ontario, the province is abandoning its decision to dissolve the region appeal. The province says, uh, cited high costs to the cities involved as the reason. Outgoing Mississauga Mayor and new Ontario Liberal Party leader Bonnie Crombie wants the province to use better judgment when making decisions like this one. This is not how government should be making decisions that impact the lives of 1.5 million residents in Peel Region. Decisions that affect thousands of jobs and critical services that our residents rely on each and every day. And that's it for the regional news update. In a minute, Laura Bain will be here with the entertainment report. But first, there are more details around the massive Tesla recall. Here's reporter Mike Dubusky with Tech Trends. Tesla is recalling 2 million vehicles, nearly every car it's ever made. EV Pulse editor-in-chief Chad Kirshner says it has to do with the car's standard driver assistance technology called autopilot. It handles the, the lane centering, accelerating, and decelerating so that you can pay attention to other things. Autopilot is a hands-on system. Which means you're never supposed to take your hands off the steering wheel. But the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says that system is easy to fool and that the company doesn't do enough to ensure 
drivers are being attentive. They said the car can drive itself and it can't. Tesla hasn't done enough to tell people that it can't. Tesla has agreed to fix the problem with a free over-the-air software update, but it says there is incontrovertible data that shows autopilot saves lives. NHTSA's investigation into the tech is ongoing. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Audible has released their top 20 list for the best content of 2023. This list includes audiobooks, podcasts, and other original content on the platform. And Laura Bain has all the details on her entertainment report. So let's yeah, welcome think- in Laura. Laura, tell us more about the list of the top of the best content of 2023. Yeah, sure. Um, So some people who know me might know that I am a voracious reader. So I thought I'd take a look at some of the best books of 2023. And I tend to consume a lot of my books by listening to Audible. So I thought we could start there. And then I have some of my picks that aren't on that list if we have time that I'm going to uh, recommend as books from 2023. So this Audible list, they call it an obsessively curated collection of editor and listener favorites. Uh, they have 20 total picks. And of that, those 20 picks, there were two on the list that I've read. So the first one is Elliot Page's memoir, Page Boy. Uh, this was a New York Times bestseller. It's read by the author, which is usually a good choice. And in this case, it was. I really love memoirs. And this one had a lot of Halifax connections, including that his mother was my elementary school French teacher, which I had no <laughs> idea until I read this memoir. That was super cool. Uh, of course, this book explores his transition, but it's also a book about family and about working in the film industry and just lots of other things. So I would highly recommend that one. Now, the other one on the Audible list that I had read is Anne of Green Gables, and I was a bit surprised to see it on a best of 2023 list, and that's because Audible has just come out with a new release with an original music score and immersive sound design. And what's really cool is that this is directed by Megan Follows, who played Anne in the Anne of Green Gables movies from the 1980s, which are really nostalgic for me. They're ones that I know a lot of people in Canada are familiar with. Uh, Now, this features a full cast production, including Sandra Oh and Catherine O'Hara. Now, other than that, there were titles on this list that we'd expect to see, such as The Covenant of Water. That was a hugely popular book this year by Abraham Verghese. It was also a New York Times bestseller and Oprah's book club pick. So this is historical fiction, One of my other favorite genres, set in Kerala, India, it follows three generations of a family with a particular affliction. And I think we can call this an epic novel because it's more than 31 hours of listening, which is why it's in my wish list and I haven't gotten to it yet. Now, I expected the whole list to sort of be books like this, Mm -hmm. but I found that it wasn't that straightforward. As you mentioned, Audible has gotten into podcasting as well as audio dramas, but um, some things like the Anne of Green Gables with the full cast and the musical score, to me, kind of fall somewhere in between. Uh, And then there were things on the list like Alive and Well, which is called a 12-part memoir by Jeff Daniels. He's done a lot of different things, but some people like me will know him best for his role in Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, this is a like a 12-part audio memora- memoir, and they call it genre bending. So it's storytelling, but also he's playing acoustic guitar. And to me, it feels like 
a lot like a podcast experience. And this just sort of had me thinking about as we move towards reading on digital platforms, whether it's for accessibility purposes or otherwise, the lines between what's considered a book or what's reading become a bit blurred. I, I think they have for me, especially with like in print form. And I'm wondering reading versus listening to some sort of other audio experience become blurred. Well, how you laid out, like a great job just laying out all kind of some of these selections and stuff and, and the differences between them. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. There's a, a huge blurring of the lines between what you mentioned, a 12 part memoir series from Jeff Daniels to a fully acted out and musically orchestrated Anna Green Gables retelling to someone reading their memoir. I, I yeah. that is to me okay. That is the audio book. That is the classic. Just someone in a booth reading the pages. You know, not not that is nothing special, but like it, it's it's about the words on the page, and that's really where mm -hmm. the the focus is, and kind of ten uh, in my mind should be, especially if you're looking at an audio book or kind of the the audio reading and um, kind of uh, idea or, or perspective on it. There, there's definitely value in, in having these like kind of long form or, or higher production um, kind of pieces of content out there. It's just it's it's hard when you kind of compare the two, because naturally, I'm sure people are going to want to gravitate towards that that more flashy uh, kind of grander retelling of a story. If it's going to be more engaging with music and actors and things like that, instead of just one person reading reading the novel. What about you, Laura? Has the line blurred for you as well? It really has. And I'm kind of in the same boat that I, I guess I grew up listening to books on tape and done by CNIB volunteers and stuff. So, you know, this is a little bit of an adjustment and I feel like it is because audiobooks have such a broader appeal now outside of people who have print related disabilities. But at the same time, I enjoy it as well. But sometimes I, yeah, find am I am I reading? Am I listening to some sort of other audio entertainment? I'm not really sure. Now, if we have time, I will give my top personal 2023 books of uh, the year. Yeah, sure. Just uh, give us give us a list and, and maybe one or two lines on each. Oh, sure. So for me, books I read that came out this year that I thought were really good, uh, Lady Tan's Circle of Women by Lisa C. And this is historical fiction inspired by the true story of a female physician in 15th century China. And this sort of inspired an uh, interest in me in learning more about Chinese culture, which I think led to my second pick, which is Hollow Bamboo by William Ping. And this is based on a true story of his grandfather by the same name. So William Ping I, who emigrated from China to Newfoundland in the 1930s. I don't know if I'd call this, like it had a lot of historical fact. It had some fiction. It also had some campy sci-fi elements, which I didn't really care for. But it did teach me a lot about um, this population of Chinese men who emigrated to Newfoundland that I wasn't aware of. And the final book that I will mention is The Country of the Blind by Andrew Leland. Uh, so the second part of this book's title is A Memoir at the End of Sight. So Andrew has retinitis pigmentosa, the same as myself. So there was lots of things I found very interesting, although we, of course, have different experiences. 
but he's a journalist and he made this really a cultural, like an exploration of blind culture and the politics of blindness. So um, it was a very thoughtful read and thoughtful listen and again, narrated by the author. So I would highly recommend that to anyone, uh, particularly who's tight, touched by, uh, you know, blindness or partial sight. Very good. Laura, thank you so much for, for highlighting the audios, uh, uh, Audible's top list and, and your own top list of the year. Have yourself a wonderful day. Sure. Thanks, Alex. You too. That was Laura Bain, the entertainment reporter. And coming up after the break, we have a sports chat with Brock Richardson. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv and in audio form on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave. It is Thursday, December 14th, 2023. Coming up on the second hour of the show, Apple released the latest iteration of its operating system. Marco Flalo gives you all you need to know about iOS 17.2 and a Mountie is currently on trial in Saskatchewan for the murder of his partner. Journalist John Lepke tells you more about this story. There's all that and more to come on the second hour of the show, but we now turn to a sports chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, you're joining by phone today, but that doesn't stop you wanting to cover some of the biggest storylines taking place in the sports world. And we're going to begin in the world of basketball with the NBA suspending Draymond Green indefinitely. Yes, they are suspending Draymond Green indefinitely because he, uh, let's say, aggressively fouled Yusef Nurkic. Uh, from the Phoenix Suns the other day. Uh, this was a play where Yusef was, had his arms kind of wrapped around Draymond's uh, waist, and then uh, Draymond decided to flail his arms as if he was one of those um, things you see at the car dealership, waving back and forth, and he knocked him to the ground. And uh, then he got a flagrant two, which meant that he was uh, ejected from the game. This is the third time he's been uh, ejected from games this season. Uh, he's been known to get in fights with his own teammates. The NBA has suspended him indefinitely and say that they need him to go through some counseling and learn to help control his emotions a bit better on the floor. And, and Alex, you don't often see uh, this where a player will be suspended indefinitely. Usually there's some kind of number attached to it, but this time they've had a bit too much of Draymond's shenanigans. Well, it, this is actually a surprisingly uh, good proactive move that the NBA has taken. I've I've seen the video of uh, Draymond uh, hitting uh, Nurkic, and 
there, there's no doubt about it. This was so intentional, Brock. He was being guarded. He looked behind him. He had a hand on uh, on Yusuf to make sure where he was, and he turned at full force and essentially slapped him in the side of the head, knocking him down, and then tried to play it off afterwards that, oh, I, it, I was just turning around. And then I think what really solidified this for the NBA was his comments post-game, where he had no remorse. He did not care. He didn't, he didn't even instigate any sense that there was a responsibility that he had. The league had to step in and do something. He's going to cause serious harm to other other players if he hasn't already. As you mentioned, he was suspended three times this year. And uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, re ejected three times this year from games. He's also put teammates in headlocks and choking teammates. Like he is a risk to himself and other players around him. And if the Golden State Warriors, his team, weren't going to step in and do something, the league finally had to step up, make a call, and take this seemingly unprecedented move to suspend him indefinitely. Just to put this in a little bit further context, too, just for the audience, this man has, has had, over his career, over $1 million in fines. In fines. Let me repeat that. $1 million of his salary over his career has gone to the NBA solely in fines. He needs to check himself. And, and I also, before we move on to the Raptors, I also just want to say it's a privilege for you to play in the NBA or any of these sports. And the fact that you don't have any remorse, no, I don't got time for that. You need help. And that's just that simple. Yeah, exactly. Clearly, uh, the fines don't work, and, and this, this step is needed to uh, try to create some accountability and some change from Draymond Green. Let's move on to the Raptors, Brock. They won. They snapped their uh, losing streak against the Atlanta Hawks last night. Yeah, they had a uh, four-game losing streak on the line last night. They uh, beat the Atlanta Hawks. 135-128. I, I have some thoughts on head coach uh, Darko Ryakovic. Maybe it's just the fact that he's new coach and just kind of not got his feet sort of sorted out yet. But I just find that he's not sure of himself with the media. Like the media keeps asking him, are you going to make changes to the starting five? Are you going to make changes? And he'll say, not right now. Give me a few more games. Give me till next week. And then next week comes around and the media asks him and they say, are you going to do it? And he doesn't do it. And I think you need to be more, uh, as a coach, especially in Toronto, in a market like this, you need to be more um, aware of how to tolerate that and how to manage the media and say, listen, this is my feeling. And I just find him to be a little bit too soft with the media. He needs to stand by his decision and say, this is what I'm doing and this is why, and that's it. Yeah, I, I think this is just a, a kind of, a common recurring theme, especially when you see coaches who don't have that head coaching experience. They don't have experience working in dealing with the media, as, as you mentioned. I, I've seen this in multiple sports where uh, even for, for my, my football team, the Chicago Bears, we have uh, Matt Eberflus. He's in his third season now as head coach. But even this season, dealing with the, or sorry, second season as head coach, but dealing with the media, there, there was multiple times where like, wait, why is he responding this way? Why, like, there, there were serious issues in, in the locker room where you need to address this to the media, and yet you, they kind of play coy, or, or they, they don't quite, like, respond in a way that, you know, someone, you would think someone in that position would, would respond, and what many other coaches would respond. I, I think there, there needs to be a, a 
kind of um, understanding and growth and how to actually deal with kind of answering questions and the accountability and what your non-answers, your non-committal responses actually represent when, when you are speaking to journalists, when you are speaking to media outlets. That, not answering the question directly or, or not being giving direct and clear responses is not gonna make the problem go away. It's only gonna exasperate it and it's gonna have a negative response and outlook on you and potentially how the team views you. And the, the non-committal answer gives the media almost an answer. It, yeah. it gives them an answer of this guy doesn't, doesn't really know. And so they love that. When you're not committed to something, the media loves it. And Toronto is a very Toronto, the big markets, it's not just Toronto, mm -hmm. but the big markets all around sports are tough media. And when you're there and, and you're not in, you know, Phoenix, Arizona, you know, with, with the Coyotes and it's a smaller market, you have to learn to tolerate it. And, and I got to be honest, Masai Ujiri, the president of uh, Toronto's operations here, they he needs to step in and start. Maybe he is. We don't know some of the behind the scenes that goes on, but he needs to step in and kind of maybe guide him a little bit as a new coach and say, this is how you need to deal with it because being non-committal isn't the best tactic. Well, going from a new coach to a, a very established coach that may be ending his run with a franchise he's been with for over 20 years, you want to kind of touch on the rumors around Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots, Brock? Yeah, it's been rumored that Bill Belichick will be leaving the Patriots after two decades of time uh, with the, the Patriots. He's won uh, six Super Bowls. Uh, in his time there, and I, I think, for one, my I have a two-part question here. Number one is, do you think that he will end up leaving at the end of the year? And secondly, if he does, does he automatically become a Hall of Famer because of his six Super Bowls? I, it, to me, if he's leaving, he's going into retirement. I don't foresee Bill Belichick leaving New England to go to another team. I just do not see that happening because the level of control and and uh, kind of how he can manage and operate the team is such that you're not going to find a better so you're not going to find a better situation and with the potential of maybe ending up with the number two number three overall pick in this year's draft to potentially get a franchise quarterback of the future you're not again you're not going to find a better situation that you're going to have that control that opportunity to really make wholesale changes i think the bigger problem for bill belichick is just over the years you know we've seen his his coaching tree as they like to describe in in the nfl when the assistants go off and become their own uh, head coaches or, or go into other teams his has not been particularly strong. He controls every aspect of his team. So those assistants, those coordinators, they don't find excess, uh, success outside of him and his team. I think that's kind of caught up to him over the years. And he may just see, you know what, you have to put so much into this to, to have success that it, it may be not worth it anymore. And maybe it's time to just walk away. You're, you're gonna go away as kind of one of the greatest, if not the greatest head coaches of all time. That's, that's not the, that bad of a consolation prize to, to call it a career and, and move on to something yeah. else. Yeah, I mean, we talk about it with, with Tom Brady when he retired. What more can Bill Belichick accomplish other than to say, you know, a new quarterback, maybe I can bring a new quarterback to, 
the promised land. He tried that. It's not working. And so for me, I look at this and I say, yeah, I think, Bill, you need to you need to wrap it up before it gets kind of ugly for you because you, we want to respect Bill Belichick. And there are those people out there who will say good riddance to Bill Belichick. I'm not in that camp. I think you respect Bill Belichick and you say, you know what, you won six Super Bowls, respect it. But there is a time where you have to say, I've done what I can do here and it's time to move on. Yeah, absolutely, Brock. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so, Brock, thank you so much. Uh, have yourself a wonderful day, and, we'll, and hopefully we'll, we'll chat tomorrow either with myself or Dave if he's back in the chair. Sounds good. Okay, that was Brock Richardson at the Sports Desk. Coming up after the break, Apple released their latest iteration of the operating system, iOS 17.2. Mark Avalo has all the details. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Earlier this week, Apple released its latest iteration of its operating system. Mark Aflalo has all the details on iOS 17.2, and he is the host of Access Tech Live. Hello, Mark. How are you doing this morning? You know what? I cannot complain. I'm excited. It's Thursday. Got a show coming up in a, just over an hour time. You know, we're, we're, getting, we're, we're all pumped up. All good, Alex. That's great to hear. So, Mark, the update originally came out November 30th, and then less than two weeks later, Apple released another update and warned all the iPhone users to update it immediately. Why was there a sense of urgency? So, I mean, listen, when it, with every iteration of an update, whether it's a 0.1 or a 0.2 or whatever, there's always going to be uh, bug fixes and enhancements. In this particular update, there were over 11 vulnerabilities that were patched with the update. That's a pretty high number when it comes to these vulnerabilities. Normally, there's like two or three. So clearly what happens is every time they release an update, there are people that will look for vulnerabilities and try to exploit it, whether it's you know things like trying to jailbreak the phone to get other apps and stuff on it, or just security vulnerabilities and Apple finds them and they patch them. And some are a little bit more urgent than others because it's a little bit easier to exploit. And this was one of those cases where there were a couple exploits that were a little bit easy for hackers to get into. So they wanted to urge and they did urge people and they are urging people to upgrade if you have not done so already. The rule of thumb is quite simple. If an update comes out, there's a reason for it. It's not only giving you new features and, and obviously enhancing things. It's always about bug fixes in the back end. And so what is new with the iOS 17.2? Okay, so this is an interesting one because there's a whole bunch of stuff that's new across the operating system. The big one that everybody is talking about is a journaling app. This is something that Apple announced in uh, in the summer at the Worldwide Developers Conference. The journaling app is really quite simply exactly what you'd expect. It's an app that allows you to keep track of things that you've done throughout the day, whether it's what you've eaten, who you've met with, activities, et cetera, et cetera. And the, and the reason behind this is because mental health studies have shown and have proven that journaling has incredible health benefits. It allows you to get things off your mind. It allows you to process your emotions better and really learn more about yourself. So that's pretty much the big update when it comes to this um, 6, uh, 17.2. 
Um, across the board, there's some other fun stuff. The action button now ties into the translate feature. So if you're traveling, this is going to be a great one for you. Uh, cameras getting some updates. There was some issues with the telephoto feature when you're zooming in, um, focusing. So that's getting fixed. Messages has a cool feature where on the top right-hand corner, there's going to be an arrow that allows you to catch up to where you might have left off. So if you're having a group conversation with a lot of people and you're not sure where where you were in the string, it can bring you to where you last read. Um, there's a new emoji feature or in Apple, it's the Memojis, they call them, where you can create this avatar of yourself. They've now added a body shape feature. So if that's something you want to get super specific into, you can make sure that your cartoon self is more accurately described of yourself. Um, a weather app now shows precipitation, but also shows you like in the next hour when it's going to rain or snow. And overall, things like air drop um, it allows you to share things like movie tickets and concert tickets and boarding passes and finally the big one i think that's kind of exciting is autofill allows you to use contacts on your device to fill out forms in pdfs or online so really you know small minute little updates across the board but these are the updates that make updating kind of fun because it brings a new life into that operating system that we're used to yeah, and it seems like it's a lot of it is all about, okay, uh, daily use, daily living, as you say, even exactly. those, those little minute in, increases, the, the autofill functions, it's just like, oh, let's just make the little things that people come across day to day far easier. One that I forgot to mention, Alex, was yeah. uh, spatial video and spatial photos, which is which is really cool because it, it actually enables, I mean, spatial, I mean, it's 3D. It's basically 3D videos and 3D photos, which you're probably saying to yourself, why on earth would I need to use that? Well, this is Apple's master plan because you know, they obviously announced their Vision Pro headset back at Worldwide Developers Conference. We're expecting to see that in the U.S. sometime in the next, you know, couple months quite honestly and spatial video and spatial photos allow you to capture stuff that you will be able to view on apple's vision pro headset so that's a an interesting feature i'm not sure where that's going to go because if you think back to 3d televisions uh they're they're nowhere to be found <laughs> i mean i i have one upstairs i have never once used you it really for 3d content <laughs> i got it it was one that was capable uh, so it was okay. even like it wasn't a true 3d tv it was like oh maybe yeah. this is the future after all no it was not the future and now it's causing nothing but problems for me mark uh but there were also in, uh, other improvements to some of the existing content out there you know in terms of like the sensitive content warnings for messages and things like that like what other details can you provide about these bug fixes in particular yeah, I mean, uh, listen, uh, you, you talked about sensitive content warnings. This is actually a, a feature that started off a little bit controversial. They had a feature that was intended for kids who were using the phone that would actually it would using AI would look through your photos or look through photos that were sent to you. And if someone sent something inappropriate, it would block them. They got some heat for that because there was some privacy concerns about AI looking at photos, even though it's a computer doing it. So they've revamped that. And now that's called sensitive content so that People who are watching, whether you're a child or not, it's going to give you a warning if it detects something in a photo. So there's not a human being that's doing it. It's just kind of saying, hey, this is not necessarily safe for work. Maybe you shouldn't be looking at this, which is a, an interesting feature uh, across the board there as well. Um, the one that really honestly excites me, and I, I mentioned it a little earlier, was being able to share things like boarding passes, movie tickets, um, et cetera, et cetera, with AirDrop. Now, AirDrop is the feature that lets you send it from iPhone to iPhone. So it, it, this is, again, it, it it cements Apple into their ecosystem, right? If you are 
using an iPhone, you want to share a passive, whether it's a boarding pass with family. I buy movie tickets for my son all the time on the Cineplex app, and I want to share the movie tickets with him. I normally take a screenshot. Now I can just airdrop it to him, and it works there. Um, in terms of the bug fixes itself, um, they don't really detail a lot of the bug fixes. <laughs> they don't want people to know what the exploits yeah. were. Um, but there there are, as I said, you know, 11 documented, but normally there are more under the hood that we don't, we don't necessarily know about. They actually have a bounty program for this kind of stuff. When a new operating system comes out, they have people and they empower people. They say, try to break it. And if you can break it and report it and document it, we'll give you money for it. We'll pay you for that. So that's a really cool way for them to empower people to go beyond just their own employees. Because, again, you know, you're limited. Even if you've got 10,000 employees, that's mm -hmm. only 10,000 people in the billions of the, of the world. If there's a great hacker out there who can find an exploit and can make $10,000 off of reporting it, then they're incentivized to do so. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really like that airdrop feature because I don't know about you, Mark. I know you're a big concert goer, a big fan. I find like the live events now, they're no longer allowing like the QR codes, no, allow, no longer allowing these like printed off tickets. It has to be on like an Apple wallet or Google Pay yeah. or something like that, where it's like you're physically trapped to your device. And I always feel slightly uncomfortable about that, having to make sure, okay, my phone is charged, my phone is ready. There's no issues that come up with that. So having it that you're able to share it and, and airdrop it to a Another device is really handy to have uh, around. Yeah, no, so. it's, listen, I, I was on a I was on a vacation once and I my phone got wet and it was it was I had to get a replacement and I had a movie ticket on there to go see a Marvel movie and I was all freaking out. But thankfully, I was able to restore it and it was in the cloud. So, yeah, no, I could totally get where you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. So with these updates, are they available on all Apple and uh, uh, devices or are there only specific models and generations that uh, can uh, have this update applied to them? So any phone that is capable of uh, having iOS 17, I believe that goes back to the 10R. Um, I, I'll confirm that and I'll let you know, but I, it goes back to 10R. So as long as you can have iOS 17, you'll be able to get these updates. The interesting thing is a lot of these updates um, and even future updates they're working on are, are more and more backwards compatible to further devices. They're really trying not to, uh, you know, force people to get new devices or really trying to make people feel, feel singled out. So uh, if you got an iPhone that's, you know, fairly new in the past seven years, you're pretty safe. Good to hear. Mark, uh, before I let you go, you talked about Access Tech Live. So you got to tease what's coming up on today's show. Oh, a very cool show. Uh, Grant Hardy is going to be joining us as well as a gentleman by the name of Matthew Schifrin, who creates incredible instructions for building Lego for people with low vision. Plus, we're going to be talking to Grant about some cool stories, including the TransLink Braille stuff that are going on on the West Coast and, 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 and lots of fun stuff around Lego this week. Uh, awesome. Mark, sounds like a great show. Thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks, Alex. You too. That was Mark Aflalo. He's the co-host of Access Tech Live, which can be seen at noon Eastern time Thursdays on AMI-TV. That's an hour after this show wraps up today. He was in Montreal. And so, you know what else is coming up on the AMI Airways? It's this weekend, it's the Pulse. And on the, this upcoming episode, Host Juwita Gupta chats with Ashley Namath about her journey as a blind parent raising three children. That's The Pulse, which airs weekends at 2 p.m. Eastern on AMI-audio. And you can also find the podcast on all major podcasting platforms like YouTube. 
Coming up after the break, a Mountie is currently on trial in the Saskatchewan area for the murder of his partner. Journalist John Lepke gives you more on that story. But first, here is the Parasport update with Greg Westlake. Hello, welcome back to the Parasport Update, produced in collaboration with the Canadian Paralympic Committee. I'm Greg Westlake. Priscilla Gagne returned to Tokyo last week to win the silver medal at the Parajudo Grand Prix. Gagne, who also placed second at the 2020 Paralympics, lost to arch-rival Liana Mutia of the U.S. in the final. Back home at the 2023 Para Ice Hockey Cup in Quispamsis, New Brunswick, Team Canada finished round-robin play with a record of 2-1. In the medal round, they shut out China 6-0, setting up the gold medal match against the US. Unfortunately, the Americans scored two early goals on their way to a 3-0 win over Canada. Staying on the ice, where Canada's wheelchair curling world championships roster has been announced. Seven Canadians will wear the maple leaf in Gangneung, South Korea, including four-time Paralympic medalist Ina Forrest and three-time Paralympic medalist Mark Addison. John Thurston, Gilbert Dash, and Chrissy Molnar round out the squad. Team play goes from March 2nd to the 9th. The mixed doubles tournament then picks up from March 10th to the 16th. Canada will be represented by the reigning bronze medalists from the 2023 World Championships, Kalinda Joseph and Dennis Thiessen. And that's our time for this edition of the Parasport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adaptive sports. to now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Several stories have been making uh, headlines in Saskatchewan. A, man, a Mountie is currently on trial in the province for the murder of his partner. Freelance journalist John Lepke has been following this case and he is based in Saskatchewan and he joins now. Hi, John. Hi, Alex. So let's uh, uh, talk about this this case. So what details are there that we currently know? Absolutely. So um, this is the, the accused, whose name is Bernie uh, Herman, uh, a Mountie for the um, uh, the RCMP, Saskatchewan Mountie, um, is accused in the death of uh, a man named Brayden Herman. No relation, as it happens. Um, this happened in 2021. Uh, in and around Prince Albert, um, and he, uh, the uh, the person who passed away, is described as um, the the accused uh, lover. Um, this trial has been going on. We just heard final arguments where the uh, where the lawyers uh, for the defendant um, uh, the lawyers for the defendant argued self defense. There's no nobody's arguing that he he didn't uh, uh, kill this person. And uh, the verdict is is going to come down in January. And so, as as you mentioned, the the, uh, uh, the verdict is set to to come in January. So, what happens between now and then is uh, what are the next steps in this case? Yeah, well, between now and then, um, I, I would say with with the RCMP status, particularly in this province, it becomes very much a a court of public opinion. And I think it's fair to say in cases like this, we will see um, 
you know, uh, a number of this always feels like a story that that sort of kicks open the door to more stories. Um, there's there's a wife involved here from from the accused who who is who's uh, his interactions with have become part of the testimony on on both sides. Um, and so or at least on on the prosecutor's side. Um, and so really from here, it goes into the uh, court of of public opinion, quite frankly. And so. Tell me a bit about what the reaction has been to this case, and particularly in in the the region in the prairies. Yeah, I think when we when we look at a story like this, it's really important to keep in mind that that you know Mounties, uh, there's going to be a shift in the agreement in the future, according to the Canadian government. But you know, most if not all Mounties are trained in Regina. Um, being a, an RCMP officer is is part of the identity in this province trending all the way back to the northwest mounted police uh you know the um the rcmp heritage museum is in regina now obviously we're talking about something that happened um in prince albert but you know i i think whenever cases like this happen the the conversation is about um particularly when it comes to self-defense and the firing of a weapon the conversation you know, now that now that final arguments have concluded, um, we'll see we'll see where it uh, where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a tragic case. Obviously, someone has has uh, lost their life, and so I'm I'm sure once the the uh, verdict is uh, um, uh, kind of. Uh, decided, then we will check in on this story, as you always bring uh, updates on, on key stories within the region, John. So thank you for, for that one. There was another one that you, you wanted to, to highlight, and it mm -hmm. involves, and this one just wrapped up uh, recently, with it involved a former hockey coach, and he was accused of sexually assaulting one of his players. So what can you tell me about this story? Mm -hmm. So um, this uh coach's name is uh Bernie Lynch um he formerly coached in uh in junior hockey in the province this relates to um and, and we'll have a content warning here I, I suppose I would give a content warning um uh for sexual violence here he's been found guilty of uh, a historical um incident from uh 1988 uh he's a well he's been found guilty of um of committing this crime against a uh, a a person who was supporting a hockey camp that that he was coaching, um, and uh, so the, that test that sentence will be handed down January fifth, um, and uh, I believe I'm just looking at my notes here at the the. Um, uh, Oh, sorry, uh, mixed my words there. Um, yeah, so that, that sentencing will come down to January 5th. The complainant, who was 17 at the time in 1988, um, was helping. And uh, yeah, here it is. The, the justice uh, who was who is in charge of this case um, has found uh, Lynch to be uh, evasive on the stand. Um, so so we'll see what uh what sentencing comes down in in January fifth? Uh, his coaching career included the Pats and the SJHL's uh, Humboldt Broncos. And so, can you talk a bit about because this is a historic 
case, like what was the timeline like in, in this situation? As you said, the, the, the crime that he was found guilty of took place in 1988. So uh, what was the, the timeline and the process to get to this point where he was found guilty? Yeah, um, so because, uh, you know, I, th they haven't come forward and said this, but because um, uh, <laughs> crimes in the hockey community, let's put it broadly there, and violence in the hockey community has been more highlighted recently, I, I think it's fair to say that across Canada we're seeing more of these cases, and also these cases take a a very long time uh, to process, particularly uh, particularly when they're historical. And, and so talking a bit about the hockey community, as you said, this, uh, this coach was involved with uh, different teams, uh, some higher profile ones within the province. Like, how do you think the province's hockey community will, will learn from this case and, and lessons they can take away to make sure that uh, the youths and the players are better protected going forward? Well, I, I certainly hope they they learn from the historical cases as well as as more recent ones. If we're talking about in general, you know, violence against uh, athletes, people you're coaching, things like that. Um, certainly, as I said, we've seen across Canada more conversations about these things. Um, but I also feel as if uh, it can feel and a former heavily emphasis on the word for me here athlete but i feel like these safe sport processes are more in the public eye now but historically have not been and that those safe sport processes tend to be siloed by sports when we're talking about sort of the um the legal ramifications for hockey canada for example we tend to talk about it as hockey canada rather than the hockey landscape um uh Whereas maybe something like the um, uh, gymnastics-related cases that we saw a few years ago in the U.S. tend to cause, I believe, a, a little bit more of a, a drastic change across the board. So I hope that historical cases like this, um, you know, hopefully the conversation doesn't trend towards, well, it was, you know, these things always end up with, well, it was one bad coach. And you go, N I don't actually believe that in terms of mm -hmm. the safe sport environment that that we can create in a province or in a country. Yeah, absolutely. And so even if it was one bad coach, it was a situation that allowed that coach to to commit these crimes. And there's still uh, changes that can be made. And I think it's very important to point out the the changes being made, the the proposals uh, being put forth even recently around safe sport and, and protecting youths and, and children and athletes as they go through these sports, because I, yeah, back in, you know, the 80s, the 90s, and even to the 2000s, as we see with some of these other cases, the the coaches, especially those who have been found guilty of committing crimes similar to this, it's, they, they were kind of shielded, they were protected, they were seen as, oh, well, they're doing such important work that, you know, no one can come out against them, no one can accuse them of anything because they're so valuable. And, and thankfully, that narrative seems to be changing that it's like no accountability matters we need to protect the athletes more than people in positions of power like this
Absolutely. And and this gets a w- little bit away from Saskatchewan, but, you know, this segment followed on from the Parasport, uh, apologies, Parasport Minute, uh, Parasport Report um, with Greg Westlake. And I think it's really important to, to acknowledge that, uh, you know, there are some additional and different in a lot of ways just because of the culture of parasport considerations when it comes to safe sport and parasport. I reported last year a piece for uh, Defector Media surrounding um, uh, accusations uh, made against um, they, they weren't criminal accusations. They weren't made in terms of a criminal complaint or, or uh, you know, um, that wasn't the subject of the story. Um, but uh abusive allegations, uh, it's fair to say, uh, against mm-hmm. uh, the former uh, coach of the U.S. women's wheelchair basketball team. Um, right. This is not just a, an able-bodied sport uh, problem, and we can sometimes get caught up in the narratives around parasport, um, and that sort of does protect the people who who don't uh, treat their athletes with the respect that is deserved. Absolutely. John, thank you so much for for bringing these two topics forward and and, and sharing some more insight uh, with us. Have yourself a great day. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. That was John Lepke. He is a freelance journalist based in Saskatchewan. Coming up after the break, we assemble the round table as elementary students in BC will soon be graded on a proficiency scale instead of letter grades. How do you feel about alternative forms of grading? Uh, Elizabeth Moeller will pose that question to the roundtable. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Before we bring together the round table, I want to welcome in Ramya Muthan to find out what's coming up on today's episode of Kelly and Ramya. Hello, Ramya. Hey, how's it going, Alex? Uh, The Thursday show is looking good. We're talking about strategies we can use to boost our confidence before attending these gatherings and parties that are all coming up. So that's going to be fun. I think my opinion is that the more uh, we have to spend with our family, the more confidence we actually need. And for accessible gaming, we're talking to Brandon Cole to talk about his in uh, involvement in the new Forza Motorsport video game. There's a lot of accessibility built in. We have um, blind and low vision players who are super, super psyched about this. So I'm excited to talk about it. And on the weekly round table, we have AMI tech guru, IT specialist, Leanne Brown joining us. Oh, that's going to be a good one. Leanne, it's a wealth of information and knowledge. I, I'm very curious what you guys are going to pick from from her her brain. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely going to be a conversation worth checking out at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Ramya, don't go anywhere because we're going to also welcome in Ram, uh, uh, Nizreen Abdel-Majid and Elizabeth Muller. And Elizabeth, you have education on your mind for today's roundtable topic. I, I certainly do. I guess what else is new, right? I often have education on my mind. But the, the education ministry in BC 
abruptly announced that students from kindergarten to grade nine are going to be graded on a proficiency scale instead of those old letter grades that we all sort of know and love. So the four criteria are emerging, developing, proficient, and extending. And I think the move really caught a lot of parents and guardians and frankly teachers off guard. So, of course, the scale for proficiency kind of takes away from that old memorization and test scores and really looks at more critical thinking. So I wanted to ask the roundtable this morning, how do you feel about alternative forms of grading? And I'm going to start with you, Remia. I um, very much approve slash think that this is a great idea uh, in so many ways, Elizabeth, because you know, now there's this question floating around. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's like, how is AI going to uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> affect our education, affect our learning system, affect the way that we actually grade or keep track of learning? Because, yeah, everything, almost everything that we know the public education system to be, for higher education system to be, depends on exams, depends on memorization, depends on um, execution of like retained information being spat back out to the educators and then they say, yep, you got it right. Here we go. Uh, We will move you on to the (laughs) next course, the next level. And like we have to throw so much of that thinking away, I think, because now the information that we need to retain and prove to people that we know is all out there. Um, Not just the information, but how we write it, the forms that we deliver this information, uh, the access we have to this information. Like it's just not ending. So I I think bottom line is, yeah, we need to reassess how we score, how we um, ask students and how we identify that students are learning. And this, I think, is just like one of the basic ways of doing that, one of the first steps to this bigger uh, change scenario. Nisreen, what are your thoughts on on the changes and, and how schools are starting to move away from the letter grading system? I am with it. I I think Ramya put it is said it very well. Um, it's it's very different than the letter grades, and I I, I really like that idea. It's something that you know the students and the parents and the teachers can see where the student is really benefiting and and learning. And I love that there's more of a description and more it's more detailed than just letter grades because I feel like. For years, a lot of people are kind of confused and vague about the letter grades. So to have a proficiency scale is more accurate in the sense of where the student is in the course. So I do, uh, I, I'm, I'm with it. I think this is a great idea to kind of move away from the letter grades. I think it's been a long time coming. Elizabeth, you, you posed a question. Where do you land on this? Yeah, so I think that absolutely thinking about alternative ways of grading is important, but I think accompanying that needs to come education and awareness for parents, for educators, and for those in the classroom who support our educators. So I think when we're sending a report card home with our kiddos, there needs to be some kind of a description as to what these things mean, how these changes are being rolled out. I think if you're a parent and you're you're getting a report card, like I'm not sure just off the hop that I would know the difference between emerging and developing. Um, so I think that that's a piece that's really important. And some parents, I think, uh, you know, from the, from the articles I read, felt that that was a little bit missing. I think another really big piece is we can't forget that no matter how we grade, we need that accompanying 
support in the classroom, right? So it's mm. one thing to invest time and resources into new methods of grading and assessing, but we also need to invest that time and that money into supports in the classroom. Um, so I, I, I'm in favor, absolutely, but I think we really need to think about how we're educating and rolling these things out. So for me, I'm very much on the fence. In theory, I love the idea of it, but this, especially within the context of this story, this is where I, I have major concerns. It goes from kindergarten to grade nine. What happens when you get to grade 10? All of a sudden, mm -hmm. you're back to these latter grades. What is that transition going to be like when you go from, okay, you know, we haven't had to focus on the grading, the true grading of a student to now you're grading the student. That is going to be such a hard transition for many. And then, because that's also too, that's right around the time where you start having to prepare yourself for post-secondary institutions if that's where you're going to go. And then you have to prepare, oh, am I, are my grades good enough to get into university, college level classes, academic, you know, applied as it was known in my day for, for a lot of different things. How is that transition going to work? Are we potentially setting students up for increased stress and vulnerability and, and kind of um, anxiety when we get to those important years of determining what their post-secondary path would look like. That's one concern. The other thing is too, it's like, it, we always view the model of, okay, we wanna be more like um, Europe and especially Scandinavia where they kind of, for the most part, have done away with these like letter grading systems, but it requires a full system overhaul, not just mm -hmm. like these basic uh, kind of, or independent uh, uh, boards or, or provinces to handling, it has to be across the board. So I do have concerns about that. Okay, we have just about two minutes left in the show. So I wanna briefly, 20 seconds each, I want to go around and find out what is your favorite or, or most memorable report card memory? So for this, I want to start with Ms. Oh, Reed. God. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. I was a geek back in the day. So I'm going to have to say all my years of elementary school and middle school of getting excellence. And my sister hated me for that. So that's... <laughs> I got a lot of like positive feedback from my teachers, uh, but I'd say my history class was not my favorite because he gave me um, a bad grade. So um, there we go. Feedback. Ooh, that that is not good, Ramya. What was your most memorable report card memory? Okay, I don't have a report card memory, but I will say the first time that I got uh, the report card or like end of year marks at um in high school i was very happy because i was celebrating the chocolates i was going to receive at the honor system ceremony so that was my carrot you know there you go chocolate instead elizabeth unfortunately we'll have to find out your report card memory tomorrow i know i'm holding you off on that <laughs> oh that was a good one <laughs> i know that was all the time we have on the show today unfortunately thank ramya nusreen and elizabeth for a great round table thank you to all the guests who joined that's it for the show i'm alex smite thank you at home for watching now with dave brown on ami tv Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv.
The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.